Fireside Chat with Dan Wynn, the Great Curator, Part 2. Welcome to Episode 5 of The Car Diary with Javier S. Thompson, and I hope you enjoyed the first half of my chat with the Great Curator. We covered a lot of topics, but not the main reason I had him on, which was to discuss the behind the scenes of BTS. So this is where more experienced hobbyists will get some good information. For example, how to set up as a dealer at a car show. And we actually talk numbers like the cost of a table and renting showcases, because I really don't hear many people talk about that because before finding out uh, all of this information from Dan um, previously and, you know, fleshed out more in this podcast episode, uh, the chat we had, I thought dealers would literally fly with checking in showcases at the airport, uh, you know, when they would travel to shows like, you know, if you, if you drive, you know, you drive with your showcase, I guess, or or, or maybe you don't because uh, in hindsight, flying and checking the showcases, that sounds ridiculous. Um, and once you listen to this episode, you'll you'll understand why. But um, I've also never seen anyone do that, you know, when as a non-hobbyist, I've never seen anyone in an airport, like someone who's a dealer at a show, you know, trying to check in a huge metal heavy showcase uh, with glass. Um, the most notable thing that I can remember being checked at is at an airport is golf bags. And I, I don't golf, but um, I used to. And then my back, I won't get into all that right now. So anyway, um, speaking of flying, before we get to uh, the part two of this uh, fireside chat, um, just yesterday, so uh, today's June 1st, where I am uh, dropping this episode, and just yesterday I booked my flight for National, which I like to call Natty because we're good friends. It won't be my first time at National because I went back in 2012, but that's a story for another time. But let me just say, I paid about $280 for my round trip ticket with American Airlines. And when I was, you know, finalizing the purchase, they asked me that, well, American Airlines asked me if I wanted to pay 10 extra dollars to choose my seat. And listen, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat of an experienced traveler. So this isn't news to me, the nickel and diming. Um, but... I also never had a podcast platform to discuss this, and I would just make these comments to my wife. <laughs> but $10 is such a number. It's so, it's so cheap enough. Uh, it's just cheap enough, I should say, to make me want to do it so I don't get that dreaded middle seat. I'm a big window seat person, and I know not everyone is. And that's actually great because in life, we need both aisle seat people and window seat people. And of course, only complete sociopaths will actively want that middle seat. But so <laughs> applying that concept uh, to cards that just like just cheap enough. I mean, I, I guess I just wanted to say whether you're a buyer, seller, dealer, when it comes down to that last $10 on either side of a deal, I, I personally, I've definitely asked myself, is it really worth it? Is it, you know, sometimes it's fun to negotiate, but then, you know, time is money. And, you know, is it really worth it for just between $10? Maybe sometimes it is. But I think, you know, it's it's definitely a luxury to be able to even have that thought. Um, because that means maybe you can afford to go that extra 10. Um, but we also have budget for cards and we want to get the best deal possible. But you know, for these bigger cards, yeah, and not the small ones where $10 is like half the cost of a card, but you know, that for the bigger cards is $10 worth it is, is $10 is a $10 card even worth your time. Um, should you be in $10 cards? You know, if you buy 10 $10 cards, should you have just gone for that $100 card? Maybe you're happy with those 10 $10 cards. I don't know. You know, it's just something to chew on. Uh, again, in your buying, uh, not phase because you're always buying, but like, you know, in the buying part of your cardboard journey is just, you know, just something to chew on. And maybe I'll explore in a future episode. So I'm going to try and keep this under five minutes. Without further ado, part two of my fireside chat with Dan Nguyen, the great curator. Here's listening to this. I hope you're going on a really nice long walk or jog. Uh, can we do a hard pivot to the reason we're here, BTS, buying, trading, selling? Would that yep. be okay? Yes. I, 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 I love a conversation we've had so far. Don't Let's get me do wrong. It. Sure. So 
when you uh so so just to call back earlier when you're talking about getting back into the hobby and like 2019 pre-pandemic like you're you're buying up toys and things that you had you didn't buy you know you didn't have uh earlier in your life let's talk about buying then selling then trading i know that's bst but whatever um buying when when you said you were buying all these collectibles were you buying them online? Were you buying them in shows? Were I buying them from people from Instagram? Like, could you explain your buying uh, streams or avenues or you know platforms? Sure. Uh, just like everybody else, for me, the the gateway um, place to buy stuff is eBay. So originally, I just started buying tons of stuff on eBay with the intention of keeping it as a long term hold. Mm -hmm. But the market was so crazy at that time that you could flip things within a week, a couple weeks. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I quickly pivoted from being an investor to being a flipper. And I was, mm -hmm. I was flipping cards and, 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 you know, wax and other things like that. And it was great. I was making a ton of money um, in the beginning and then doing that online. Right. I kind of uh, pivoted from selling stuff on eBay to, going to shows and setting up mm -hmm. a show because it was just a lot easier to not have to deal with shipping fees and things like that. Um, and that's kind of like where I started before I, I, I pivoted to, to my next stage, which will be our next segment. Well, so yeah, you kind of bled into from buying straight into selling and flipping and all that. Mm -hmm. So maybe that is a good way for us. Cause we're already like totally behind schedule. Um, you recently, uh, recording this on uh, in May 2023, but last week you were at the Dallas Card Show as a dealer, right? So I wanted to kind of have this be, you know, I mean, when it comes to the infotainment aspect, this is definitely, at least for me, has been entertaining. But for more informative purposes, uh, maybe we do get into a little bit of nuts and bolts and like dollars. But like, um, I mean, I. I I guess you are allowed to talk about it because it's it's publicized online, I think. But like to set up as a dealer, uh, how much does it cost? Like to to rent. I think we've talked about this privately, but like to rent a showcase. Like there's there's like these costs that people don't think about when they are setting up as a dealer, right? So, yes. um, could you kind of talk through talk us through, I guess, how the Dallas Card Show went from a sense of like you know however much you want to talk dollars and cents, but just, just get paint, paint us the word picture of being a dealer at a card show, please. Sure. Okay. So real quick summary. The reason I, I wanted to become a dealer is when you walk around shows, it's, it's tough. It's tough. When you go up to tables to try to sell stuff, it's very tough that they, they have an advantage over you, the dealers, mm -hmm. um, and they'll tenderize you. You're right. So that's why mm -hmm. I did. I, I, and I wanted to sell stuff. I, it's very easy to go around shows and buy, but if you want to sell, you really got to be a vendor because you are at a total disadvantage um, at a car show. And that's, that's primarily where I, the space that I operate. So I've been a vendor for like almost over two years now at shows, just been setting up shows across the country. Dallas is my favorite one. I've been there like the last year and a half or so, or two years or so like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's considered the best car show in the country, in my opinion. So I'll just mm -hmm. talk about the, uh, the specifics cost behind the dallas show but just understand that the dallas show is like the top show in the country so everything okay else so be before you continue uh ebay not an official sponsor uh dallas car show not an official sponsor and before you talk about the dallas car show i did want to say burbank car show is coming up where people are like talking about that being the potential best car show and you're not talking about national either but would you say currently right now and i don't think it's gonna be controversial or whatever but like are you saying that maybe from a vendor or dealer perspective that selling being a uh being a dealer at the dallas car show is better than being a dealer at national for for example no uh national is its own thing it's mm. like you can't even compare anything to the national but okay the closest you can get to a card show a, a, a national experience at a regional card show or a national card show would be mm -hmm. the dallas card show uh, just it. because of of how got professionally it. it's run and the amount of people that go there and the amount of money that is spent there it's it's a close comparison but the national is, is it's completely different. so 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 when you're saying it's the best card show in the nation you're saying it's the best card show outside of the national yes got better, it better, thank yeah, you i just want to clarify than, that yeah 
And I've been around, you know, there's some shows that I haven't been to, like Chantilly is one of them, but mm-hmm. I've been to Toronto, which is considered the national ex- uh, of Canada. I've been to Culture Collision, which is a huge show in, in uh, Atlanta. I've been mm-hmm. to Chicago Spectacular. I've been to mm-hmm. all the California shows, mm-hmm. I've been to Vegas shows. I've been around. Um, mm-hmm. So I've got a pretty good idea on, on, on how shows run and the different shows that are out there. And, and nothing really compares to the environment of Dallas. Great. So thank you for setting that up uh, and clarifying that. So now nuts and bolts, the floor is yours. Sure. So when you go to Dallas or let's just let's just assume that Dallas is like a local show for you, right? Like you live in there, you can drive there. So when you go there, uh, basically, you got to rent a table table at Dallas costs $275. If you're grandfathered in like I am, it can be as high as like 350. If you if you're just trying to uh, rent it from somebody else. Um, That's kind of like the price for that. Plus, you got to rent the cases. Cases are $50 for the entire weekend. The show goes from uh, Thursday to Sunday. Okay, so that's that's pretty much the, the cost involved. But if you're traveling in there, you also have to factor in hotel costs, which can be mm-hmm. anywhere between five to $800, depending on mm-hmm. the rates. And then uh, plane tickets, obviously, depending on where you're coming from, plus food cost, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. And then uh, that's like the main stuff. And then, you know, when you go, go there, you're going to have to have money to buy stuff too, because people are selling as well as uh, buying your stuff. So you have to have cash on hand. But that's that's pretty much like the basics of gotcha. So, so two offshoot questions. One being, have you ever split a table, and do you get multi-table discounts? And just like, let's talk more about these uh, these eight by three. I, I think Dallas is eight foot by three foot, right? Eight foot table, yes. Yeah. Um, traditionally, I do split the table with a buddy of mine, uh, Brian Sunday League investor, but he doesn't mm. go to as many shows anymore. So I've kind of like evolved into having enough inventory where I take up a full table myself, mm. you fit four showcases, four standard size showcases on uh, those tables. So usually I operate between two to four showcases uh, per table. Mm. Um, but lately I've been kind of expanding that, but that's what usually people do. Uh, I'll touch on one point that you just mentioned. Do I split tables? A lot of people, when they do their first shows, they will mm-hmm. split the table. I did that too. When I first mm-hmm. got in the game, and I quickly learned that you don't need to do that. So hmm. I would encourage people, if you're trying to get in the game, the only reason that you want, want to split the table is you want to save a little bit of cost because you want to share some risk with somebody else. Mm-hmm. But the the real estate that you're giving up is more valuable than the half of the table cost that, that you're saving. Okay. Mm-hmm. And most of these tables are like under $100. At, at a regular show, mm-hmm. the table is going to be like $50, $75, something like yeah. that. At a bigger show, it could be up to $200. Some of the bigger shows are more than that, but most of them are like between you know $200 or less. Just pay the extra money because that real estate that you're you're giving up, you could you could put more cards there that are worth more than you're giving up in terms of cost savings. Yeah, I, mean? I think that's a great great point. I mean, and again, you're the you're I've asked you here on here as the expert, and and I'm the person who's learning. I have dealt at shows too, and. I'm pretty sure that in my first chapter or my first episode talking about BTS, I'll I'll mention my experiences there. But what about the I what about the concern that if you are an early, uh, not an early, but like you know your your first time dealing, you might not have the inventory. So can we talk about inventory? Like when did you know that you wanted to? I know you said like, oh, I at a certain point I knew I wanted to be a vendor because I get better deals and it's an advantage, but. Can you talk to me about the first time you sold? Like, how did you know? Like, when was that switch from I'm going to be a vendor now? Well, when the time that I was trying to set up a show, local show here uh, in California where I live, um, it was just uh, basically I was tired of getting tenderized from the buyer perspective on the other side of the table. And I applied Mm -hmm. to get a a table at a show. And back then it was not easy to get tables. Like you, like Mm. I had to, I had to like uh, kiss ass to Mm. get on the waiting list and get approved to get the table. And once they said, Hey, you're in, I didn't have a choice. I just took whatever I had and I set up a table and I, I split the table with my buddy. Um, And I had, you know, basically two showcases worth of stuff. And I put in just whatever I had at the time, you could put graded cards in, you could put raw cards, whatever, but you just fill it up. Um, uh, but that's what I had to do because the opportunity came up and I took it. 
So I was just kind of like thrown into into the fire with the wolves or into the deep end, whatever you mm-hmm. want to say, mm-hmm. um, in terms of being a dealer. But that first show that I set up at, it was a small show in a gym, probably like 100 tables or whatever. Mm. It was a noticeable difference in terms of selling cards. It's like I made, I was so, it was so easy to sell cards compared to what I was trying to do before where I was walking up the tables that that's when I realized, hey, this is where I want to be. I want to be on this side of the table. This is how I want to sell my stuff. And I've been setting up ever since then because of that experience. That's really cool. So you've mentioned this term a couple of times and for the newer folks me you know maybe the more seasoned folks would understand what this is and if they've watched your content i think they would know what this is could you please elaborate more about that term tenderize tenderizing is a term that i use i make up a lot of words in the hobby uh it's tongue-in-cheek it's supposed to be fun but basically it just means like negotiating with somebody you know just trying to get a better deal negotiating with them beating them down a little bit tenderizing them so that you can get uh, the best deal possible you know um early on in my denny cards uh social media i i had the denny's logo which i i never got you know a cease and desist letter for and i think you were uh candidly concerned about my well-being <laughs> with that but i do like i love food um i i love fast casual and all that i think i'm going to start incorporating more food terms and i do love that you use the word tenderize but here's the art of tenderizing as again like i think i know more about food than cards but when you tenderize you are beating it, like you said, like lightly. You're not smashing it or breaking it. You're not putting the knockout punch, the KO. For the people who are listening to this on podcast, Dan Dan is like shadow boxing, like he is ready to uh, really tenderize someone. Yo, well, that's the people's elbow right there. Watch <laughs> out. But tenderizing is you have to be tender. I mean, like you you have to beat it down. But I guess what I'm saying is a proper negotiation is one where you can be respectful and you can assert your your stance as to why something costs a certain amount or why you want it for a certain dollar amount. And I'm not here like we're not, you know, my 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 hope is that my content is evergreen and that people can listen to this all, you know, whenever they want. But I, you know. Should we talk about that a little bit more about how to negotiate in a tender, <laughs> in a tender way? Uh, like, how do you tenderize? Like, you know, like, are there certain phrases or tactics or tricks where you're not beating someone over the head? You're not brutally, you know, you're not, you're not completely taking advantage of them in a deal. Like, you know, how, how do we tenderize? Sure. Um, I'll give you a summary, but I've actually made several videos about this on YouTube. So check that out, guys. Another plug for my early informational <laughs> videos on how to negotiate uh, in the hobby. Okay. But basically, it, it stems from this. In Southern California, and I'm I'm not even going to be, uh, I'm, I'm not even going to try to be humble about this. Southern California oh. has one of the best hobby markets. Why start country, now? Why start in, now? In my opinion, right? Yeah. My opinion. But there, there's... At, the, at there was a period of time where there was a card show every single week. There were like multiple card shows every single week in Southern California. Mm. Lots of people out here, lots of young people, lots of old people uh, in the hobby just doing transactions. And I would describe it as as being around sharks. This is mm. this is an area where they they back then maybe it's chilled out a little bit, but back when I got back in the game, they would not hesitate to take advantage of you. You know what mm. I mean? If you had a car that was a hundred dollars, they'll pay fifty dollars, mm. you know, to get it from you, and they'll they'll beat you down, thinking, you know, they'll beat you down, and they'll take advantage if mm-hmm. if if you could do that, yeah. okay? And if you don't know any better, then you're gonna get taken advantage of. So I kind of when I got back in the game, I really didn't like that. I didn't like mm-hmm. people that said this is my way, this is the only way to do it, and you know they quote comps and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the aggressive tactics that people were using, yeah, um, to Same. get deals, right? Yeah. Because back then it was all about money, just money, right. money, money. I want to make profit, right? I don't care about right. you. Very short-sighted way of thinking. So I developed my own strategy based on my my experience my professional experience my personality where i would negotiate with people in a way where i was uh i was basically nice to them you know i was i was trying to treat them fairly i was trying to be polite respectful 
And I find that when you're, even when you're on opposing sides and you're trying to get the best deal for yourself, if you conduct yourself in a way where, uh, you know, you're respectful and nice to a person, then they're more willing to work with you and you're more likely to be able to get a deal done than if you were just trying, trying to bully them essentially or impose your will on them. So I kind of developed this strategy where when I negotiate with people, um, I just try to be as fair as possible. I, I talk to them. I explain my position. I try to understand their position and I try to structure deals that are fair for both sides where both people feel good about the transaction and they can walk away happy. And, you know, I cover that in a lot of my videos uh, on YouTube, but I came, I came up with the term tenderizing as a way to just kind of make light of, of that process, you know, just to kind of make fun of it. Like, when I negotiate with you, I'm not trying to beat you down and take advantage mm -hmm. of you. I'm just tenderizing you a little bit, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, tenderizing you so that I can get a deal that, that I need to work for myself. But at the same mm -hmm. time, I want you to be, to, you know, to feel good about it too. Right. No, that's great. And I know you didn't say this phrase, but what, what that reminds me of is this term, which again, it's kind of like, it's a food term, but that relates to the hobby is meat on the bones. And, you know, you've, I'm sure you've bought and sold with other dealers and vendors. And so I, I, again, I, you don't, you didn't know these questions ahead of time. I do have my one final chat GPT question to ask near the end, but um, can I ask you, you know, would you like to talk uh, some about that term uh, meat on the bones for the listenership? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, basically uh, I'm assuming that when you say meat on the bones, you're, you're, if you're in a transaction, you want to leave a little bit of profit, a little bit of room yes. for somebody else to make money on the deal. Exactly. This exactly. is a common mistake I see that a lot of people make in the hobby when you're trying to wheel and deal and transact on a on a high level is that a lot of people want top dollar for their cards. If their mm -hmm. card is worth $100 in their mind or based off of a comp, yeah. they want $100 for it. Right. Um, and the thing is that if they're competing against other people that have that card, then they may not get top dollar because they, they have to compete against other people and other people are looking for the best deals. Now, yeah. if you have a rare one of one card that nobody else has, then yeah, you name your price. But for most people, they have cards that other people have also. So they're competing with them. So you have to get kind of, kind of get it processed in your mind where you understand that if people are buying cards, unless they're buying it for a collection, they're most likely trying to buy it to you know as an investment or to flip or make profit so you have to understand that's their position and you have mm -hmm. to try to structure it in a way where they can achieve that interest where at the same time you you achieve your interest of getting you know making profit on your card and that mm -hmm. that will all depend on your cost basis on the card mm -hmm. but a lot of people ignore that fact they ignore their cost basis they may get a card for a dollar and the card may have last sold for like a hundred dollars and they want to get a hundred dollars for it but they have the flexibility to 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 give less in, in order to move that card. Um, and a lot of people just get stubborn about that. So that's another mm. thing that I talk about in a lot of my videos of just trying to learn and understand your cost basis and understanding the other person's position when you're negotiating. And if you mm -hmm. can do that, you will find that it is it is way easier to work deals with people. OK, people mm -hmm. will be more willing to do deals with you. Uh, immediately and in the future if you, can, the future. if you can take the time to understand their position and leave some meat on the bone for them um if that if that's what they are if they're a flipper or reseller or something like that right no that's really good i really appreciate you saying that and i know you've alluded a lot to your past videos and i and i gotta say you know i'm i'm a content con creator now like i'm just too busy i'm sorry i haven't listened i haven't watched those old videos i've seen but, your uh, content you're not that busy oh <laughs> yes you're oh it it hurts because it's true. Um, okay, so here's the thing. I really like you talking about the rarity of cards and the one of one. Like you mentioned the phrase one of one. And so I did want to ask you for the newer listeners to to you know this, like uh, not newer listeners, everyone's a new listener to this. What am I saying? Uh, people who are newer entrants to the hobby, they might see a one of one in a showcase at a at a local card show, right? And I hope they listen to this because I whether you talk about it or I will, if, if, if you're not, I think you will be able to. Um, but could you explain how or why a one-of-one one truly sometimes is not a one-of-one one and that it's not such a rare thing as people may think it is to, to newer entrants in the hobby? 
Sure. Um, the term one of one means a card that is is numbered one out of one, as opposed to other numbered cards that look the same that are numbered out of ten or fifty or one hundred. It's right. it's it's a gimmick that the manufacturers, Tops, Panini, and all the other ones, mm -hmm. it's a gimmick that they use to add artificial rarity into their cards and make mm -hmm. people chase those cards. And thus, because they do that, it increases demand. And that's why those cards are worth more money than a card with the same picture, just maybe a different color or a different mm -hmm. number on it. Okay. Um, that's, that's essentially what a one of one is. Well, uh, I was really hoping to be sponsored by Tops and Panini. There that goes. Uh, thank you very much for just blowing that out of the water. Can but, I say uh, this? <laughs> Let me just add to this, though, okay? Because okay. I have a lot of one-on-ones. Mm. One thing that I learned right early, okay. later, one thing that I learned later in the game after I spent a ton of money yeah, okay, is that um, when you get into the game, the first part, when you do this and you and you do it on a high level where you're transacting a lot, you want to make money doing it. Uh, it's very tempting to just buy everything, right? right. Just buy everything, buy a, a base rookie card, buy a silver prism, mm. buy a number out of 99 or a number out of you know 50 or whatever. Mm. It's very tempting to just buy as much as you can, but everybody eventually always learns that to really protect your your money, your investments in this hobby, and to to um, limit the how much you are competing against other sellers or against comps on eBay and things like that is you gotta you gotta buy rarity. That's mm. why the one of ones matter because mm. they're rare. If you have it, you don't have to compete with everybody else, right? Mm. Um, so that's why you know I for now I basically only buy exclusively very rare cards, one of ones or un numbered under ten or very low pop cards that don't transact that much because rarity is the best way for you to protect your investments. And it's how you can stand out from all the other hundreds of dealers at every show out there that are selling the same thing. If you have the most rare things, that's what, that's what gets the most attention attention. And that's where you can make the most money, the highest profit on your cards. Otherwise you'll always be competing against eBay or the guy next to you that has that same card. And you don't want, you don't want to play that game. So, so that is a, that, that that's good advice for people who want to sell and vend and flip and all that. But let's say you are a newer entrant into the hobby. Would you say that it is a rite of passage or like a step you have to first take to get to the rarity to buy the base or the silver or the lower you know the colors and the number cards or do you think that's something that you could just skip all together and go straight to like the 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 out of 10 gold vinyls and all that like what do you think about that three years ago when base cards were worth a lot of money a thousand bucks for a uh, luca base psa 10 prism yeah you could do that mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. or even a silver for that matter mm -hmm. where a card that had a pop of 500 plus you know psa 10 it was okay you could do that because they were still worth money now, no, I would advise mm. against that because the, the the landscape is so competitive. The market mm. has been so saturated by these common lower end cards that mm. they're not worth the time and effort to do that. But this is where this is where I have to give you my best advice. Okay, there we go. For this, for, uh, for, only for one hour in, okay? one hour this in. Is and the, let's uh, get this to is it. the nuggets here. This is how you get here them. You have to have them engage the entire hour. That's how it helps the algorithm. Okay. Oh, I'll go. Okay. All right, here we learn, go. learn from me. Absorb. Okay. I will absorb okay. it. Oh. All right. A lot of people, when they get into the hobby, the first thing that they that they have the hardest time wrapping their mind around is the prices. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, a card is worth a thousand bucks. Ten, you know, five thousand, ten thousand dollars. Yeah. Most people, a card is worth like a dollar to them, right? That's what yeah. they have in their mind. Twenty dollars, maybe a hundred dollars. Oh my God, this guy's paying $2,300 for this PSA 10 of whatever card. They can't wrap their mind around the prices. So, yeah. but they want to get in. It's, it's, it's fun to them. It looks sexy. They want to get in on it. So they start off low. They buy these base cards for $20, $100, you know, a couple hundred dollars, whatever. But the margin on those things is so thin. And they quickly, they quickly develop a tolerance, a risk tolerance where they start going higher, you know, higher and higher and higher. So mm -hmm. the, the sooner you can get from point A where you're buying that low end stuff mm 
mm-hmm. to point B where you're buying, you know, mm. high end stuff where you can make really good profit on the sooner you can close that gap, the better off you'll be. And the hardest mm. part of that is really just in your mind of processing, spending that type of money. And I give you another example. Okay. You said you love food, right? If you really love food, right, you would have no problem paying maybe $100 for a steak, you know, $500 for the best steak in the world, whatever, right? If you really love food, if you don't value food, then you don't want to pay more than $10 for a meal, for lunch or for dinner, $10, $20, right? It's all about perception. As, As long as you can process in your mind that these cards are valuable and you understand the art of buying, selling, trading, making a profit, then mm. there's no difference in the process from buying a $10 card to buying a $10,000 card. It's the same mm. process. It's just in your mind, are you willing to take on that risk? Do you have the the funds, the resources to do that? And the right. quicker you can get from that point A to point B, the more successful you'll be in the hobby. I like that a lot. Uh, I will say I, I don't think I'll ever buy a $500 steak or a meal, but I mean, who knows uh, if I sell enough cards, maybe I can. Um, I really like the idea of the point A to point B because I think, you know, the the quickest way from point A to point B is a straight line. And there's that saying, you know, uh, as the crow flies, it's almost like if you fly over buildings, you can get to from one place to another. But when you go through streets or roads, pedestrian walkways, driving, you you have to go around structures. And I feel like sometimes, yeah, some of these roadblocks or structures can be artificially placed. And some of them are stuff that we do to ourselves. And maybe in the year 2023 again i'm trying to be evergreen content and who knows how how much of this will hold up but maybe there is a strong good argument for skip these unnecessary steps along the way now i say that in a crazy way because the whole premise of my podcast is stop and smell the roses try these different things out but when it comes to the buying selling and trading i mean bts the buying trading selling maybe there are certain things that you don't have to uh, vend or flip or navigate so that you can get to your final destination quicker. Uh, well, not final destination, but I, I, I think what I'm saying is I get your points and I really do like your insight. Uh, and maybe I will stop buying yeah. junk. Let me, let me add to that too. Not to say that it's wrong to buy a $1 car. It just depends on what level you want to be on in the game. If you mm-hmm. want to just collect for fun, that right. stuff is entry level product. Yes. That stuff, that's retail product that you buy at right. Target, right? Right. And it's meant for that. It's not meant for you to make money and start a business and quit your day job to do that. That is true. To get to that next level, you got to start buying the higher end stuff, right? Yes. So you can't you can't think that you're going to set up, for example, we'll go back to the Dallas Card Show. You, you, think, you can't think that you're going to set up at the Dallas Card Show, spend money on the table, the cases, the hotel, and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be flipping, you know, cards that are like a hundred dollars, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just not feasible. You mm-hmm. know, you won't be able to turn the, the cards quick enough to do that. So it depends. If you want to be a, a, a dealer, then you've got to have inventory where you, it's going to be worth your time and the, and the overhead cost. If you want to start a side business, then you've got to be on a level where you're making enough money to support your lifestyle. You know, right. if you want to quit your, your day job, it's even higher than that. If you don't right. want to do any of that stuff, if you just want to be a collector and enjoy the hobby, yeah. then yeah, you could buy, you know, uh, 10 cent cards and just still have right. enough time. But everybody wants to be, everybody has this conception. They watch, they watch YouTube videos. They watch all these guys on, on the vlogs that are flippers. They want mm-hmm. to be that guy. They want to be out there doing thousand dollar transactions. But if you don't have the right mindset to do that, you yeah. you're going to get yourself in trouble you know what i mean you're going right. to buy a bunch of stuff that you that loses value or you can't move and you're going to become disenchanted and you're going to start pointing fingers at people That's saying that they misled do. you and right. um you know so i just try to tell people look the best way to kind of get started if you want to be in this game buying selling trading is you've got to do the research watch and restrain yourself from spending a lot of money on things that won't get you the return until you're tr- yeah. until you truly understand the process and you're and you're ready to put in the work. 
Yeah, I didn't do a good job of setting this conversation up because, yes, that is the big disclaimer is with buying, trading and selling. Right now, we're talking about selling uh, your expertise is being a vendor and dealer in real life, you know, local card shows and regional card shows. And so I know personally as a dealer, like uh, as as someone who has dealt, I don't put in my showcases cards that I collect and I love. Like I'm not putting my Jordan cards out there. I'm putting cards that I want to sell or move in my showcases. I know there's definitely arguments to be made to put in some of your nicer pieces as showstoppers or people to kind of like, you know, window shopping, go, Ooh, look at that. And you know, how much is that? And you know, it's not for sale or a really high dollar amount, but yes, this whole part that we've been talking about really is, do you, if you want to sell to make profit, like, don't like, yeah, don't buy base and silvers if you don't have to, uh, if, if you're looking to eventually flip again, just being a short term, uh, definition of selling and, you know, investing is just a longer term and eventually you, you know, you may sell that off. So thank you for, thank you for that insight. I really do appreciate it. Now I, I, I meant to ask earlier, you mentioned pop and, you know, the, the seasoned veterans, the intermediates, uh, the, the, the people who are considered inter intermediate learners i don't know people who have been here for a while they'll know what pop is but for the newer listeners god i said it newer listeners again the newer entrance into the hobby could you please explain what pop count or pop is yes uh pop just is short for population of the card the companies that grade the card psa sgc bgs and whatever other company csg mm -hmm. uh they keep census reports on the number of cards that they grade and what grades they are. So mm -hmm. the lower the pop population report on a card, the more rare it is. So for example, like a, uh, a PSA 10, you know, Nike promo card of Jordan, for example, is a pop mm -hmm. seven, uh, 170 for a PSA mm -hmm. 10. I know I have that card. So mm -hmm. that means there's only 170 okay. of those cards that are graded currently in the world. Mm -hmm. um so that makes it relatively rare compared to the psa 9 which there may be like a 900 of them mm -hmm. out there and again going back to my earlier point you want to buy rarity because you don't want to mm -hmm. compete with other people um mm -hmm. if you buy a card i'll give you another example i used to one of my biggest mistakes is i i invested heavily in kobe bryant 1996 tops paper cards psa 9s Oh, that's what invested I have. heavily oh. spent like 13 grand on like 13 uh, of them or whatever, something like that. And I thought to myself, it's Kobe Bryant. Everybody yeah. wants a Kobe Bryant rookie card. At the time, yeah. the pop count was 10,000. And I thought yeah. to myself, there's there's at least 10,000 people out there that would pay for this card, right? Mm -hmm. And then the pop count kept growing to like 13. Now I think it's like a 15,000 or something, like that, maybe even more. And even then, I, I thought I would think there's at least 15,000 Kobe Bryant rookie collectors out there right that would want that card of course mm -hmm. right and maybe there are but the problem is when there's so many out there they transact more very heavily and because they transact that's that sets the market value so when i bought into those cards they were like a thousand bucks a piece now they're like i didn't even look they're probably like a hundred dollars each or something like 300 bucks for a psa 9 or something like that probably lower i see you looking around you probably have some <laughs> uh i feel terrible right now yes. and that um... was probably my biggest loss because they just transacted too much and kobe Bryant is one of them zion prisms are another luca prisms all those guys all that high pops up basically mm. if the pop is like over a hundred mm. it's or, or if they're, or if it's close to the PSA nine pop, whatever that is, mm -hmm. then that's too much. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And but, but the 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 additional thing I want to say to that is, I have some cards that I either created myself or I purchased where it's like literally a pop one, the only one that was graded by PSA and is a PSA ten. And what I realize is it's because it's a such a such a bad card that no one in their right mind except for this one person whether it was me being crazy myself or another crazy person decided to submit that card in for grading and get a and get a grade back so i do want to just add to what you said and with a caveat that just because let's say you have a dealer who who shows you the pop report pulls out the psa or the bgs app and says look at this it's a pop one it's such a rare card 
Pop reports very valid point about how you know for the really nice cards you 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 know the the higher you go up in the uh, the grade you can have like you know the the thinner the air comes and and the lower the pop report uh, pop count is, but I gotta say I do have some pop one two and three cards of PSA ten where no one in the right minds would have graded that so. And I'm not yeah, going to say specifics because I don't. Just, I'm too embarrassed. Just to address that point, yes, some cards. If you see that are pop one and they're old cards, mm -hmm. like ten years old, it's probably because yeah. nobody wanted to grade it. You're right. Okay. And this is, but you know, like you have the only one out there that's a PSA ten. So if somebody wants it, they got to pay your price to get it. But this is a trick that I use, a strategy that I use to determine whether that would be fair or not. Is basically you just look online to see if you can find the raw version of that card. Yeah. Um, and see how much it is. If, yeah. if if the raw version is like five bucks or less, mm -hmm. then it's worth you taking the risk to buy it. A really good copy, mm -hmm. pay $15, $20 or whatever it is to grade it. Maybe you yeah. get a PSA 10 too. Yeah. If the raw cards are several hundred dollars, okay, and you don't want to take that risk and the card that that person has is just a little bit higher than that, sometimes it's worth paying just to get the grade that you know you're going to get versus the risk of getting like a nine or some other grade. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! You know, I just realized we, as my first guest, I'm just letting this conversation go wherever we want. But I did plan on having a future episode with an expert in the grading, uh, you know, like a like a group subber or something. But I love that we're talking about this. I mean, you do have a lot of expertise in a lot of these uh, areas. I think I just have to have you on another time. I cannot believe we are 77 minutes into this. Um, it's an hour more than I. Set I was going to give you. Um, so I, I could talk to you clearly for two hours, but in the interest of the time and viewership and maybe leaving some meat on the bones for you next time to come, I think I'm going to try and wrap it up and briefly, briefly talk about trade night and then give you the chat GPT question and then we can call it. Um, trade night. I think you and I have talked about this. I went to my first trade night and I was overwhelmed because I thought it was literally just trading. And I, uh, I think it's a misnomer. Uh, I haven't been to many trade nights. I've been to, you know, like a couple and you know, I've, I've done some, you know, people like to call them online trade nights or people like to trade on, you know, Instagram and, and, and online. But could you tell me please your experience with what you have done with trade night? Sure. So trade nights are, um, they're not, they're not an old thing. You know, they're not, they have not always been around. Hmm. They usually, you know, trade nights are pretty much a new concept, uh, for card shows. Um, uh, that's why a lot of card shows don't have really good trade nights. Okay. Hmm. In comparison to what I would say, Dallas, Dallas has probably the best trade nights because it, it's basically like another card show that goes way into the, uh, AM real late. But basically, trade nights, like you said, it's not just trading anymore. It's just it's just another place for you to transact with cards. But the thing that's unique about trade nights is that you don't have that disadvantage of being a dealer and a and a person walking around. There's no mm. tables. You take mm. the table away. Suddenly, you're on an even playing ground with everybody else there, mm -hmm. and it changes the dynamic of how you do deals. But with that said, I would say some of the best deals that I've ever done have been at trade night because mm -hmm. there is not that table there uh, in front of you. Um, the only difference is you have to hustle more. There's mm -hmm. probably less people there, less foot traffic, but you can get really, really good deals at trade night uh, that you couldn't get normally at a show. Okay. So again, I guess we're going back to this uh, the, the, the physical and figurative concept of tables and the power of the tables. Maybe that's like something I could talk about later or make content around the power of the table. But though the first trade night I went to uh, was kind of like table set up where people could sit. And I guess you could kind of like sit on either side, but basically it was first come first serve. So the reason there is equality between people in trade night is there's no table fees but at least for the ones that i've been to there are actual tables and whoever gets through the door first gets to sit and set up almost like you know like a free mm -hmm. table like you know you know i don't think there's gonna be renting of showcases and like elaborate setups mm -hmm. and like you know i think some people do try to move sealed wax in trade nights but in Let general me just tell you real quick at the yeah. dallas card show 
it's like another card show at night. They said they some people bring out their display cases and put it there. I at the last Dallas card show, I'm not joking. I'll send you a picture. A mm-hmm. dude was so desperate to set up that he made a table out of cardboard and he set up and he killed it. <laughs> I know the wow. guy. He killed it. So it is it gets crazy now, uh, the way that these trade nets have evolved. So so, so there are tables though. So you do you do agree or admit that in Dallas Card Show trade night, there are tables and chairs. So it's not like hotel ballrooms where I, I mean I've seen pictures of national like last year and the year before where people are literally just like on this dusty, dusty carpet, just like dirty, grimy. People are just like you know, leaning against the walls in the lobbies of hotels and doing trades that way. Yeah, we like, don't care. We don't care. We just want to do the deal. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's in a parking lot. If there's a trade night going on and if people yeah. are wheeling and dealing, we don't care. Okay. We'll do it. <laughs> but so, so people that, so it's free, right? That's a big thing. Uh, usually there's pizza, like just like, you know, someone, someone chips in and gives free pizza out to people uh, if they, if they're sponsoring it. Um, there's buy so people would you agree one of the big tips for trade night even though it's trading is bring cash right yes cash is king cash is king um what else so people bring their there's i mean dealers can be in trade night the public can be in trade night so people just bring their stuff right just people and people are just there to transact whether it's with money or their card raw card just slapped cards right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everything's okay. fair game at trade night there are like there are tables literally literally there are tables there but there is no distinguish distinction between a vendor or a, mm-hmm. a person that's just attending the show everybody's on an equal playing ground mm-hmm. so you can sit at anybody's table you can talk to anybody that you want there mm-hmm. and just try to work a deal gotcha all right so i said i would be brief on trading uh it is the kind of like the the sometimes an afterthought of the bts buying trading selling but in the interest of time i am going to move on to the final question i have for you and then we can do a little mini wrap up which will probably take 30 minutes um are you ready and i think i did share this with you beforehand um well you are ready. I don't know. Where else are going to go? Okay. I'm always ready. I was born uh, ready. You were born. You were you were born in the womb. You, you were you were collecting in the womb. That's right. You're you collecting. Right. I'm, I'm always ready to talk hobby, to give advice, to talk yeah, shit about people. There, there. It's like uh, multifaceted. It's yes. you're you That's, are. Uh, I am the hardest working man in the hobby, as they like to say. You know. I, I gotta address that. I mean, <laughs> no one is no one takes nicknames that you create for yourself seriously. Um, I would never do that as hobby as Thompson. Like, I you know, Denny Cards, like I would never create a nickname for myself, you know. So um yeah, okay. So here we go. But you just did though. <laughs> Well, you're not. I'm the host. I'm the host. You can't call me out. You can't call me out. All right. All right. I plugged in your name into Chat GPT. I'm not trying to neg you. Um, maybe I do I have know. a common name though. They 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 didn't know who you are. They they said great curator. What is that? That's well, you know, you know, Hobby GP, uh, Chat GPT or whatever it is. It's not up to date. It, it does not search the internet. It has a baseline of, of knowledge uh-huh. that it has, but it's not like current internet stuff. Well, you know, when the, when the robots and computers come to uh, take over mankind, they're going to come after you first for saying that they're insulted. <laughs> um, you know what? There should be something called like hobby GPT. How awesome would that be? You just put in hobby, yeah. hobby related content questions. Okay. Oh my gosh. Let me get to it. <clears throat> All right. <sighs> Can you share a memorable experience or defining moment that has shaped your journey in buying, selling, and trading sports and pop culture cards? This question allows your guest to reflect on a specific experience or moment that had a significant impact on their personal or professional growth. It provides an opportunity for storytelling, insight into their expertise, and allows listeners to connect with their journey. 
It can lead to fascinating anecdotes, lessons learned, and inspiring narratives that resonate with your audience. That's the question. Sure. Okay. Can I, is it, am I limited to one? Can I give like two, maybe three? I literally gave you this question ahead of time. Literally. It's the one thing. Okay. You know what? Yes, please. You are the guest. I should be more accommodating. I, I'm like host of this house and podcast. Yes, the great curator. You can give me as many as you'd like. Okay, I'm going to give you three examples, okay? Three. I, I'm going to cover a spectrum here. Okay, here we go. Maybe four, okay? So in the beginning, <laughs> really in the beginning, when I was setting up at card shows, um, I, you know, I was making, you know, a thousand bucks, maybe a couple thousand bucks each Humble show, whatever. Yep. And it was cool, but then I, I started to ask myself if this is worth my time. Is it worth my time and effort to do this to make a couple thousand bucks to sit there for six hours or whatever it is, mm -hmm. make a couple of thousand dollars? And I wasn't sure if my inventory was like the right inventory that I was buying that people wanted. Mm -hmm. But what really kind of set me on this path where I really became, I fell in love with uh, being a vendor at shows, mm -hmm. is I was set up at the at this Las Vegas card show that was inside a mall. This is mm -hmm. early in my uh, vendor career. And it was a terrible card show, terrible experience. I, I will never go to a card show in a mall. It's very like Bush League. They put me like underneath this, this uh, window. I had the sun beating down on me and my cards for like five hours. I hate it. I was pissed. And uh, it was like the worst. I was selling. I didn't sell. I barely sold a couple hundred dollars worth because there was like no foot traffic. And then towards the end of the show, like the last like hour of the show, this dude comes in looks at my showcase, picks like eight, eight of my highest end cards and buys everything from me, barely any negotiation at all, pays me like $24,000 cash. He puts it on the table, stacks of hundreds bills and $2,000 you know, rubber bands. And I could not believe it. It's the most money I've ever, most cash I've ever seen before in hand, most money I've ever sold anything for. And uh, I took that fake. Money. <laughs> I, I I spent it all already, so who knows? Okay, but, so, okay. Um, I took that it's money. And I, I was like, I ran after I was. I, I packed up my case and I left out because I was so, so scared that I had all this cash. Yeah. Right, I thought I was going to get robbed or something. Totally. And I was after like you know after uh, you know I packed up all my stuff and I was driving home and I was eating dinner. I was like reflecting. I was like, wow, I can do this. You know, mm. I can I can be a vendor. And if I have the right cards and I know how to how to make deals, I can make money doing this, right? And that set me on a path where I created like this small business of, uh, you know, buying, selling, trading cards. So that was a really cool experience, and that kind of led me to to understand that no matter how bad a card show can be, all it really takes is one good deal to make your make the mm -hmm. whole day for you, make the whole month for whatever it is. So that kind of gave me that perspective on on what it's like to be a dealer. That um, was really nice for Jeff Wilson to do, by the way. That's that's just such a heartwarming <laughs> no, it was just some story. Dude, I, I've never seen him ever again. Never seen Man. this guy ever again. And I've been to a couple other Vegas shows, just, just never seen him in it. But if you're watching this, thank you, thank you. Um, he's not. There's no. Yeah, way. he he yeah. he he set in motion who I am today. To be honest, uh, what a, from that what experience, an origin story. <laughs> yeah, of me being a so, vendor, anyways. People don't like you. They can blame that person. This then. is this yeah. is even before content. This is before I made content at all. Wow. So this is, nobody knew who I was. I was just like some dude. The, um, but he, he set me on that path. Okay. Then um, I, when I was uh, buying cards, I was, like I said, we were talking before, I was buying like common cards, sports cards, things like this, just chasing money, just chasing profit. Mm. You know, I see a trend going for like John Morant cards. Okay, go buy John Morant cards. Go mm. buy, you know, uh, whatever it is, this, this prospect, these guys, right? Yeah. Then I met some guy that lives in my area. His name, he goes by uh, Ultimate Pastime. His name is Mark, Ultimate Pastime. Hobby OG. Been mm -hmm. here for like 30, 40 years. Yep. Okay? Yep. He has this phrase, which I've I've kind of appropriated from him. He has this phrase as, buy what you like. Buy what you like. And I've had many conversations with him. Mm -hmm. You know, brief, but but heart-to-heart -heart conversations where he's like, this is this is a hobby, dude. You know, we have this this crazy cycle right now. We have a lot of hype. But if you just stick to buying things that you like, you can never go wrong. You can mm -hmm. never go wrong. And 
those words resonated me with me a lot to where I kind of shifted my strategy from chasing profit, chasing mm -hmm. what everybody else was chasing and just trying to keep up and not get left behind to actually buying things that I enjoy. And that's when you started seeing me buy like Marvel cards, Star Wars cards, you know, uh, other things that I enjoy. And, and all this stuff that I have here is a result mm -hmm. of him setting me on that path. And that's when I really shifted away from sports cards into mm. pop culture cards because that's where I feel most comfortable. Um, so I, I attribute a lot of what I am of my collection and my inventory and how I've evolved as a buyer uh, to my uh, interactions with, with Mark. Wow. That. Okay. That's, that's then, really nice. Okay. Yes. And then uh, as a content creator, um, there's two stories I'll share with you. One story is, you know, like we talked about earlier, how small minority of idiots out there uh, make videos about me and they troll me, right? Mm -hmm. In the beginning, when they did that, I my natural instinct as a person was to fight back. Mm. And I would engage with these fools and I would do I would make memes about them. I would get them real good. I would get them real yeah. good. They get real pissed off. And I would get into this habit of just like sniping at them and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And one day I was making this meme and I spent like 35 minutes making this meme, editing it and all that stuff. And I was like, <laughs> ha -ha, I'm going to get them. And um, I just realized like, damn, I just wasted like half an hour fighting with this guy who I don't know at all on the other side of the country or something like that. What am I doing? Yeah. And it gave me the perspective that like the hobby is not about it's not about that. It's not about attacking people. It's not about getting yeah. wrapped up in these online beasts with people that you have that you know don't know that you'll never meet. It's about positive interactions like what I'm having with you, mm -hmm. buying, selling, trading, making profit, having fun. Mm -hmm. It's not about getting in fights and over over stupid stuff, you know, hobby stuff. So that gave me yeah. a perspective. So that's why I kind of pivoted from my position where I would make fun of people attack people to where I just try to be more positive and try to set a, a good example, but don't get me wrong. I got a lot of jokes and I, I'm locked and loaded. And sometimes I will take shots at people if they, if they uh, get step over the line. But for the most part, I try to restrain myself because I feel like I don't want to lower myself to their level. And then my yeah. last example that I'll, I'll tell you, which is what really put me over the top mm -hmm. is I went to um, the Toronto sports card expo last year mm -hmm. and it was a, not a great experience for me from a term in, in the terms of being a dealer there. It was just very difficult to sell cards. It's a totally different environment being mm -hmm. out of Canada. Mm -hmm. But the highlight of the show for me was this little kid. His name's uh, Mason, a little uh, Asian kid uh, came up to me and he was like 10 years old and he knew who I was. He watched all my content he came with mm -hmm. his mom and and his mom told me, yeah, he's he he loves you. He watches all your stuff. And he was oh. so excited to meet me. And I was like, what? This little kid watches my stuff on YouTube and Instagram? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and uh, I started collecting Star Wars cards because of you. And, oh. you know, um, he just, you know, he's like, he, he just loved me. He looked up to me, you know. And I felt like I instantly felt a connection with him like, like this is like my little brother or something, you know, my little nephew. Mm. And I gave mm. him a Star Wars card for free. It wasn't worth mm. that much, but he, yeah, base. he, he, he thought it was like, you, you thought I would give him a one of one super fracture or something. He was so excited. Wow. And it was like a three day show. And he came back every single day, talked to me like for like 10, 15 minutes until his mom dragged him away. And uh, I still keep in contact with him from time to time. Uh, I watch his, his content. He starts making content now. I've sent mm. him gifts for Christmas, things like that. But but oh that interaction with him kind of told me, okay, I need to make sure that I set a positive example for people. I don't know who's watching me. Little kids are probably watching me. So I want to make sure that my content is fun, entertaining, engaging. And I, I set the example of, of the type of people that I want to come into this hobby. If little kids are watching this mm -hmm. and they're learning from my mannerisms and the things that I do, I want them to to – I want to set a good example for them. So that's why I try to like create content that's kind of like fun, lighthearted, somewhat educational, but I try to, I try to set a positive example instead of like lowering myself uh, in the gutter with uh, you know, all the trash and, and getting in these stupid beefs. I try not to do that because I don't want, I don't want people to see that and think that that's the norm. Well, that was really uh, not cool for Jeff Wilson to do that after buying all your cards, just trolling you. Um, 
but you guys are good friends now, I guess. So that's good. But yeah, no, um, I got to say, that's really, that's a side of you that people don't know. Again, it's like, you, I was like, like, I think we're all somebody, but you know, some of us are hobby nobodies or whatever, but like, I didn't have anything and we just talked and you gave me your time and that was really nice of you. Um, I, wait, let me ask you, did you sign that car for the kid or did you, or did he like the card like, I gave? No, I gave him a star Wars card. Yeah. But like, did you just like slap a sticker auto on it with your initials? No, 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 no. Oh, I, but I, have that ready. I, he, he did take a couple pictures with me. I did charge his mom for that though, but that's good. Uh, no yeah. capitalism, baby. I had a no. slow show. You know, yeah, slow show. It's Toronto. Yeah, I mean, it's your Canadian money. I, I don't even know yeah, how that's not Canadian works. dollars. It's like it's like four thirty U.S. You know. Wow, that's uh. So one thing, can I can I comment on that real thing? You keep ahead. you keep mentoring how mentoring uh mentoring mentioning. I can't, I can't, we're, we're going on too long. I'm like You're, yeah, now. no, I am so tired. mentioning. It is literally twelve forty six right now. I am. I you, don't you we have to work. <laughs> you have let's to go to not work talk about that. No, okay. I mean, <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I'm going to get keep mentioning this, so. how yeah. you reached out to me in the beginning and I talked yeah. to you. Okay. Yeah, First yeah. of all, I thought you were just like some guy trying to scam me in the beginning. Okay. Cause you said you wanted to, like, you said you were in California. You wanted to meet me. And I'm like, who the hell is this guy? You're like, yeah. Hey, we're, we, you're like, we have a connection. I'm Asian too. Come on. You know, <laughs> oh, what? Okay. And I was like, we're I was like, this okay, out. this guy's a weirdo, okay. but yeah. You know, uh, I I checked you out a little bit. I was like, all right, he he just he's just really you know out there, and he just wants to get to know me. And but the reason I, like you said, I gave you I gave up my time to talk to you was because I try you know I try to help people as much as I can. If you're yeah. coming to me, yeah, um, and you're not trying to take advantage of me, you're not trying to get me to buy your stuff or whatever, but you just mm -hmm. want to ask me questions or you want to get to know me or you appreciate the content that. I'm putting out and that you're consuming, yeah. I will talk to you. I will, yeah. I respond to almost all my DMS mm. out there. I respond to almost all the comments, um, uh, on my YouTube and everything like that. Everybody mm. that I meet, I try to have a positive interaction with them because if they're supporting me somehow by following me, watching my content, then I want to make sure that yeah. I'm, I'm there as a resource to, to the best of my ability for them. And sometimes that's just a brief conversation. Sometimes that conversation develops into, you know, a friendship like, like me and you, yeah. or, or sometimes it doesn't, you know, but I always try right. to make myself available the best I can, because I think that that's what the hobby is about. We all need to try to help people. It's, it's in my early mission statements on all my videos where we talk about, where I talk about setting a very high standard of conduct, high level of civility within the hobby that we mm -hmm. hold each other accountable to. And yeah. if I if I can do this to people, then I hope that they will also do that and and set that high standard for the next person. So that's kind of like why I did that. And you know, look, it's developed into a, a friendship. We talk to each other, we text. I'm doing this show for you. I'm yeah. seeing you grow. And hopefully it's really my sincere intention that you will continue to be consistent with your content and you will grow and you'll be an example for other people out there and they'll follow you. And we have more stuff like this versus, you know, trash content that's trying to tear people down. Yeah. You know, we don't need any more of that. We need more long form discussions, uh, positive engagement this and, and friendships. Yeah. Well, I'm really sorry to break the news to you, but this whole time uh, we've been talking, it's been a long con. Uh, I've been meaning to get a hold of you to talk to you about your car's extended warranty. Um, I don't even have a car. <laughs> whoa, breaking news! That's that's uh, that's going to go in the show notes. I think. Yeah. How do you? How do you? Oh God, this is so late. It's like twelve fifty. How do you not have a car in California? We have that a is car. car country. I, I work well. We have a family car, but I work primarily primarily from home, so. Um, I just gave it up, lower right. my carbon footprint, and there I am. Okay. I See, I'm so tired I can't even make a joke about that. I, I want to say, like, in all sincerity, uh, I, I did joke to you before the show saying, hey, you know, I think I can turn your villain edit into a, you know, go from a heel to a face. Um, I like being a heel, though. <laughs> I know. I like pissing people that. off. 
you you are generally a good dude in the hobby, and I know I hope people get to listen. I there's who the heck is listening this far into this? They they, they must be like on the longest run or must You're have gonna the have worst to cut traffic. it up, cut it up in digestible. Segments. I don't want to. I don't want to edit. Okay. okay, I'll I'll talk about. It. I'll think about it. Yeah. Uh, you help me out, or I'll pay you to uh, edit or whatever it is. Um, here's the thing. Use a uh, Chat GPT to do it for you. They have Thank- AI programs for that. <laughs> All right. Thank okay. you. Okay. I, I want to say in closing, I just want to say you much as people may see you and I, I think people just don't get the joke, the inside joke. I think there's a lot, a big part of you where it's things are done tongue in cheek, but some people just take it way too seriously or way too literally. And it's almost like they don't have the uh, humoristic intelligence. See that that's probably really bad, but I don't okay. even know how to explain it, but they, they're just not, they're not. They don't have the social cues to understand what a joke is. So anyway, yeah, I don't know if there's if there's a condition for that, but some people, you know, I joke when I say I'm the hardest working man in the hobby, even though I probably spend a lot of time in the hobby. Okay, but I, it's clearly a joke, and some people take it yeah, seriously. I know where they'll they'll make posts. This fool thinks he's the hardest working man in the hobby. This fool, you know, thinks he works harder than me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some people that take that literally, and I used to think it was so stupid but now i think that it's actually a condition because mm-hmm. i was at a a, a, a wrestle con a wrestling mm-hmm. convention set up as a vendor yeah. Yeah. and there's this there's this guy cosplaying as hulk hogan he's probably mm-hmm. about five six skinny you know but he's dressed up in hulk hogan gear and walking mm-hmm. around and i was jokingly because i was on camera i was jokingly said oh my god it's hulk hogan right and um this guy right next to me is like that's not hulk hogan I'm like, it's Hulk Hogan. He's like, are you stupid? It's not Hulk Hogan. And then that's when it clicked in my head that, oh, shit, there's like guys out there that don't understand sarcasm. Mm, There must be a condition for it. I don't know what it is. I'm not trying to make fun of these people. But now I realize that there are some people that take everything literally Mm -hmm. and that's how they react. So I'm more... I'm more kind of like uh, lenient on some people when I see things like that. I'm more, you know, if they have that type of uh, condition where they just don't understand sarcasm. I will refrain from making a joke about that as well. I will focus on the wonderful positivity that you do exude. And I am just so tired. Why did you make me wait this late? <laughs> oh, talent. These These people who think they're just so... Uh, but you are on the West Coast. Okay, here's the thing. I'm gonna wrap this up. I, you know what? I just realized. I'll just make this into a two-parter. I'll have like a first part. I'll put that as a, as a podcast, and then do the second one just to give people a little bit of a breather. Uh, I did say in my show notes if you ever need to take a break, let's take a break. We didn't do that. We just powered through. I cannot believe that this is an hour and forty-five minutes. Dan, the great curator, you are a positive force for good in the hobby. I can resoundingly say that there are people who just don't get it. Um, I am here to really learn from folks like you and you're only my first guest. And I hope that my future guests are equally as entertaining and informative, the infotainment, if you will. Um, But they're going to have really big shoes to fill in that regard, I think, because you are an excellent, excellent first guest. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your knowledge. Um, I can't even end this with sarcasm. Like I said, I'm just way too tired. So <laughs> thank you again. And after uh, I press end record, you you will uh, tell me what to do with this so I can push it out to the platforms. Yes. Yes. I, I am the executive producer of this show now. <laughs> you are the captain now. <laughs> yes. Thank you for having right. me. And thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. (laughs) You're doing my sign-off now? Oh, my gosh. All right. Bye.